Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Truth and Rally podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, reporting in the middle of nowhere. So the NBA season is going to end this weekend. And one of the things I always talk about in my podcast, one of the things I always look at that kind of astonish me, you know, people will just look at certain numbers and say, poor, great, okay, et cetera, and so forth. But I look at certain things and it just, certain things astonish me. Certain things just kind of feels mind-boggling. So look at this thing I'm about to say. So in the NBA, there are 30 teams in the NBA, right? Only 16 teams can go on and essentially play a playoff game. Playing games is just, it's like a, like a tiebreaker games. But the thing that I'm, I want to talk about is the fact that 23 out of 30 teams have a 500 record or better at home. 23 out of 500 teams. Just think about that. Isn't that crazy for some of you? And if you look at some of these teams that are 500 away, I mean 500 at home, but horrible away, if you look at some of these teams, some of these teams make the playoffs. Some of the teams that are not even playing teams at this moment, but are, are 500 at home or better, but horrible away, if they just played average, they have one chance of being a playing team. They have another chance of being one of the six teams in in the uh, uh one of the best six teams in the conference. And for some of these teams, like the Warriors, they have a great opportunity to uh to be uh be tied with one of the best records in the Western Conference. So here's an example. The Golden State Warriors have one of the best records at home this season among teams going into the playoffs. One of the best records at home. And yet they have the, one of the worst records. No, actually, they have the worst record out of the 20 teams that, that are going to that are gonna play in the playoffs between the play-in teams and the teams ranked 1-6 to six in either conference. Think about that. To make things worse, look at this re their record. Just to give you a number uh, as an example. They, are, they have only won nine games away this season out of 39 games. Think about that. I mean, they are going to the playoffs, and they are the sixth seed in the Western Conference. But here's an example. If they just played mediocre... They go from a team that's in the low 40 wins uh, total to a team that, that, that could finish the season with 52 wins or better if they were just average away. Think about that. You go into the season, you go in, even into the playoffs, and if you're number two seed, you go into that first round facing the seventh seed at home. And if the playoffs play to your liking, you will continue being the home team versus the away team. Just as an example. Because now the Warriors go into the playoffs as an away team. Unless every team 1-5 gets eliminated and they face teams 7-8, to eight, they go into the playoffs as an away team. To make things worse for the Warriors, the last two games... All away. 
there's a great possibility that they lose both games. And if they lose both games, there's a great chance and the Lakers or the Pelicans win the last two games, the Lakers and Pelicans can take that sixth spot in the Western Conference. And the Warriors, the 2022 NBA champions, have to go into the playoffs as a playing team because they couldn't play good away. Just think about that. I'm not saying that they have to play superb or great away. They just had to play average. They just had to be either at 500 or at least one or two games under 500. And they would have won over 50 games in the season and had the opportunity to finish the season as the number one seed going into the playoffs. And I find this mind boggling. What is happening with these teams? What, you know, what did Steve Kerr do in away games that for some reason that we saw and witnessed the Warriors beat teams that were under 500, teams that they easily could beat at home, but for some reason, they always lost. The idea that they only won nine games. I mean, it, it's, I, ladies and gentlemen, it's just, I don't understand how this could be, how this is something surrounding a team going into the playoffs, a team that easily with the experience you look at the Warriors as a great team to repeat because they have experience on this side versus a team like the Kings who weren't in the playoffs last year but as of right now are one of the best teams in the Western Conference and their lack of experience even though they have one of the best records in the Western Conference the lack of experience could potentially hurt them in the playoffs where the experience that the Warriors have with Steve Kerr and Curry and Thompson and Green Gives them a the great opportunity and great chance to go deep in the playoffs. Someone has to explain to me how there are 23 teams that could play great at home. And yet when they play away, they got awful. How does, how does, that, how does that happen? It's, it's like, you know, when the whole COVID situation happens, happened, a lot of companies and a lot of different organizations, a lot of different people worked at home. And it's kind of like saying every person who did the Zoom meetings and all the other meetings that they did at home had the best meetings they ever had for the company and produced some of the greatest work at home during the pandemic. And now when it's time to go back into the office and it's time to, to, to do the work, the work doesn't meet the same, the same production and the same level of effort and everything else that was great during the pandemic when they were home doing old Zoom meetings don't meet the same standard and they play below standard below that. Maybe it's not the same thing. Maybe that's kind of, you know, uh, reaching in some ways. But it's something that I, I think about. It's something that is just, it's just weird how teams could be so poor away. I mean, the, and I'm not expecting this to be elite. Just maybe I'm I'm emphasizing this too much, but it's just kind of mind-boggling to me. So going to the playoffs, if you don't know, all teams want to be a six seed. All teams want to be a six seed and and basically go into this last weekend and rest players and excel and so forth. And the, and. You know, one of the things that's crazy with the injuries is, for example, is the Pelicans. 
the Pelicans are going to be a planned team. They have to go into the planned <clears throat> series next week, and they have to go without Zion Williamson yet again. Their record overall has improved last year to this year, but yet again, Zion Williamson only played 29 games, and the Pelicans have to go into the planned game with an injury, with a guy out. So there's going to be a what-if factor. A what-if factor if that Zion Williamson played, would they have made the playoffs? And there's another team that's missing a good player, Julius Randle. And this is why you want to be a six seed. Because Julius Randle has missed the last two weeks due to injury. But being the fact that the Knicks are the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, they get more time and more of a chance to get him back. Because they don't have to play next until next Saturday or Sunday or even Monday, whenever the playoff series starts for them versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. But they have a great chance of going into the playoffs with him ready versus him being hurt. So then the question is, what if the Pelicans were seeded 1-6? to six? Would Zion Williamson go into the playoffs healthy and helping them? Or will the Pelicans be a team that could potentially be eliminated in the next seven days due to the fact that Zion Williamson did not play. You know, to me, the season overall is crazy with injuries and the what-if situations. So here's an, another example. I was talking about Zion Williamson a little bit uh, a few minutes ago, but here's another example. Kawhi Leonard of the LA Clippers hasn't played the whole season. I think he's played about 50 to 52 games this season. But here's the, the crazy thing. And I know Clipper fans rather have what I'm about to say versus what the reality is. If Kawhi Leonard could have played the whole season or up to where we are right now in the season, the Clippers are 18 games over 500 going into the playoffs versus being a team that's only four games over 500. They're, they're better than last year. Overall, they're not a playing team, but again, the what if factor is 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 surrounding this situation, because the truth is, I bet you the Clippers rather go into the playoffs having some kind of home court advantage versus being a team that has to be an away team through the whole playoffs, depending on who they play. So let's talk about another injury. Let's get back to Zion Williamson. So Zion Williamson is another example of a player missing and hurting its team. Yes, the Pelicans are a playing team and are better than last season. But if he was healthy, the Pelicans would have been one of the top six teams in the NBA. And close to being even, maybe even the fourth seed if he had played all 82 games. And that's the crazy thing, crazy thing that surrounds teams right now. That these guys and how... The, the, the chemistry of certain guys not being in the lineup hurts a team. But the reason why I highlight Zion Williamson is because there's a great chance that he could be eliminated this weekend. Uh, the Pelicans could be eliminated this weekend. And the what if factor, oh, it will surround them again. And instead of waiting to see if Zion Williamson can play a full season, Last year, in July, the Pelicans gave him an extension 
of five years of where he's going to make over $30 million in each season to a guy who has not played a full season in his whole career and has never exceeded 60, between 60 and 61 games in his career. Majority of his career, he has been hurt. The numbers he has when he plays is great, but with the salary cap always hurting teams, the Pelicans have basically shot themselves in the foot in some ways with a player that's always hurt. Sooner or later, these injuries are going to hurt Zion Williamson so much that when he does play, he never looks elite again because he gets hurt so many times and either has to have so much surgery that he ends up ends up missing games. And I think it's just crazy. Why would the Pelicans do that? Why would any team give a guy, especially with the salary cap, $30 million if his track record says he's injured majority of the time? I mean, Pelican fans are probably angry right now at David Griffin, the executive that made the call to sign Zion Williamson to an extension. Why? Why would I want to be there? Maybe Zion Williamson should have not should have not signed the contract and basically said, maybe I should get up. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe I have to start new. Maybe the excitement of starting somewhere new can do something different. I don't know. But the idea that Zion Williamson, again, could be the player that's going to stop the Pelicans, one, from being better than a playing team, two, you have to guarantee with Ingram and McCullen and, and Williamson together that they have a great opportunity great opportunity, and be the favorite to win next week's play-in series and go deep into the playoffs if they had all stayed healthy together for the majority of the season. It's just crazy. So let's talk about another player in the NBA. Mr. Kyrie Irving has not worked out for Dallas. In 20 games that he's played for Dallas... Dallas is 8-12. and 12. Now, he's not played every game with Luka. He also has missed games. So the question I have with this situation is, if the trade deadline in the All-Star game was right in the middle of the season, could the chemistry eventually have gotten better between, between them and they finish the season strong versus living on a prayer this, uh, this upcoming weekend? Just think about that. You get Kyrie Irving. Who would have thought that Dallas would have gotten worse? To make things worse, the NBA social media put out the other day, before the trade was done, Dallas Mavericks had a 96% chance of making the playoffs. That's almost guaranteeing, fully guaranteeing, that this team, the Dallas Mavericks, were going to make the playoffs. And then they made the trade, and they're entering this weekend a 4% chance of making the playoffs. Can someone explain that to me? How that happened? How do you get an elite point guard? How do you get an elite guy who you give all this credit of being a great player, and he ends up hurting the team versus helping the team? You know, end of the day, I just don't understand how the NBA has it where 60%, about 60% of the, the, the season has to be played before an All-Star game happens. About 60% of the season or more of the season happens before, this, the, before the tread deadline happens. 
I feel like, man, a routine, once you get a guy like a Kyrie Irving, a routine just gets disrupted. Because you have to change and you have to make adjustments. You have to think that the guy's addition is going to be great. But in some ways, it weakens the bench. In some ways, it weakens the chemistry. You have to put things into perspective. The idea that prior to the trade, this team has been practicing four to six months together and have making adjustments along the way. And just when they're supposed to make those perfect adjustments, going into the All-Star game, going to the trade deadline, you get a major player. Now you have to change things around. You have to, other players on the team have to say, I'm okay with playing less minutes. I'm okay with getting less, uh, less of an opportunity. I'm okay with warming the bench. That's what you have to say. Just think about that. How can anybody think that way? And that's what Kyrie Irving did. You know, to give you another example of, of, of a trade that was uh, I saw the other day is um, Donovan Mitchell. Before the season started, Donovan Mitchell was rumored to wanting to be out of the Utah Jazz. Many analysts like Stephen A. Smith and others linked Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks. As a Knicks fan, I was ecstatic. Because, not just because Donovan Mitchell's an all-star, but Donovan Mitchell's a Met fan. He's a New York fan. He's the ultimate guy who you're going to see attend, not just, but not just be a guy who plays for the Knicks, but you probably would have seen him attend more Ranger games than any other t player, and you probably would have witnessed him going to an extended amount of Mets games because now he lives in New York, and he's a New York Nick. But what they put out there was kind of crazy. Someone put out there that if the Knicks had pulled the trigger and made the trade with Danny Ainge and the Utah Jazz, the Knicks would have had to have basically get, get, get rid of 8 to 11 players. Think about that for a second. For one player, one player, the New York Knicks have to get rid of 11 guys. Now, this is not a, a, a current 11 guys on the roster. It would have been probably four or five guys who are currently on the roster, plus five to six first-round draft picks to, to, to make the deal happen. Think about that. Think about the fact that you just weakened your bench because now you just get rid of five guys. Now you have to add five guys besides Donovan Mitchell to make that bench good. And the question is, who would want to come when the salary cap is not big enough to sign certain players so now you have to get the guys who may not be consistent but can give you once in a blue moon great games. And when you want to be a playoff team, you don't want a guy who's won in the blue moon, a great guy who has a great game. You want a certain amount of consistency because consistency helps teams be 500 or better. A guy who is streaky and having plays who is streaky can't help a team win games. I don't know of any team that could win when the team is streaky or players streaky, meaning he has five good games, but then he has 10 horrible, horrible games. How can you win in that manner? And I'm happy the Knicks are going into the playoffs as the fifth seed. They didn't pull the trigger. The players who were rumored to be traded have all helped the, the New York Knicks substantially. What makes it even better that all the players that the that the Utah Jazz wanted, got
got drafted by the Knicks. And the idea that they have been so good for the Knicks, and one of them, Emmanuel Quickly, is a potential six-man award winner in this upcoming, uh, in this year, in the season. I like that. And the idea that we could probably go into next season and if just trade two players and get rid of five first-round draft picks or less, I'll take that versus 11. Just think about it. 11 players could have gone for one guy. And if this guy, if Donovan Mitchell came to the Knicks and the Knicks won a fifth seed, if the Knicks didn't win an NBA championship or go to NBA finals, would the trade have been a failure? I say yes. So I'm actually happy we didn't get Donovan Mitchell. So one of the other things I want to talk about is, you know, before the season started, I talked, I kind of talked about Miami Heat and how I thought Miami Heat would not go into the season be a number one seed. And I think this is one prediction that as I was actually right. And I wasn't predicting how many wins. I didn't predict how many wins they would win. And I didn't say who was going to be missed games and et cetera and so forth. But you got to look at Miami Heat's history. Miami Heat are a funny team because since 2009-2010 season, they have increased. They've been one of these teams that one season they increased 5 to 10 games, then they decreased 5 or 10 games or 4. They never are consistent, consistent. The only thing that's consistent with them in the last 14 years, is that they've made a playoffs the majority of the time. But other than that, the win total has gone up and down. So them being 10 games worse than last year is crazy. The idea that they have the same players and they couldn't even be a fifth or sixth seed going into the playoffs is even crazier, in my opinion. They're kind of like the Warriors of the Eastern Conference because... The idea that they won 53 to 52 games last season and they, and they were the one seed and that they're going to finish this season as the seventh seed and have a chance and opportunity to not even make the playoffs because the play-in doesn't, the play-in doesn't guarantee your spot. It just guarantees you that you have to win at least three to five more games. Maybe three games, I'm sorry. In order to say you're the seventh seed or the eighth seed going into the playoffs. But I find that interesting. I find it interesting that that's a drop off. And the question is is that a worse drop off than the Warriors? Going, the Warriors going between one of the top two, top three teams last year to being the sixth seed, but also being a team with one of the worst records. Or. Is it worse that the that the Heat were the number one seed last season? Now they're finishing the season at the seventh seed, and they're not even guaranteed a playoff spot. At least the Warriors are guaranteed a playoff spot. They don't have to play next week. They can uh, relax. Wiggins, who missed a substantial amount of games for personal reasons, is back and can build that chemistry that was lost in his time missing games. Guys who are not a hundred percent right now can recuperate and be stronger going into next weekend. When the Warriors play again, where the Heat, the Heat have to play and have to win every game in, in the plan. I mean, they can win. The, and this is mind boggling that 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 happened. 
but maybe that was that's what makes the NBA exciting. Maybe that's what makes the NBA a must-watch. That no team is guaranteed a playoff spot. No team is guaranteed to repeat itself. I don't know, but I do find it crazy. And lastly, a guy who's been injured the last four seasons is coming back at the right time for the Phoenix Suns. And that's a Kevin Durant. The idea that Kevin Durant has missed a substantial amount of games, but now he's finally healthy during the playoffs, is great for the Suns. The Suns were great when he was hurt after he had joined the team and injured his ankle. But now they look even even, uh, better. The idea that Durant is healthy and Booker's going to go into the playoffs where he doesn't need a Chris Paul to find the fountain of youth and be a great point guard or an elite point guard or need DeAndre Aiden to be uh, great. They just need them to do the, to play their role. And that's it. Because Kevin Durant and Booker going into the playoffs, having the chance and opportunity of being a combination of a team that's gonna, uh, of players who can average 50 to 70 points per game with just them alone is crazy. The idea that maybe if Booker's having a bad game, Durant could pick him up. Or if Durant's having a bad game, Booker will have a better game. I, I just, I think it's crazy. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, who they face, you know, and, and all that. But, wow, the Suns are a team to be scared of. And the question of the day going into the playoffs this this uh, year in 2023, will these playoffs be different than the last two playoffs? And what I mean by that is if you look at the teams that made the, the fi- NBA Finals the last two years, injuries basically played a part of them winning. The, a lot of these teams who went into the playoffs last year and the season before that in the NBA Finals, the teams that were along the road that they played with had injured players. An elite elite player was missing on the opposing team. And here's an example. The Celtics versus the Bucks. It went the distance between both teams, but Chris Middleton didn't play. But then there's a what-if factor. What if Chris Middleton stays healthy? What if he stays healthy? Does the series go seven games or six games? Or do the Bucks sweep them? Or, or it's, it's only five games. Would we have seen the Bucks versus the Warriors instead of the Celtics versus the Warriors? And I'm not trying to discredit these teams, but or maybe I am because, in my opinion, if I'm going to face an elite team, I want all your guns. I want all your players there. Even if they have an injured rib, injured leg, injured this, I want them to play. But if they're not playing, I can't lift my hand up in the air and say, well, I really beat them. You know what I'm saying? Like a team being happy to beat the Chicago Bulls back in the 90s and Michael Jordan didn't play or Scottie Pippen didn't play. Did you really beat the Bulls or were you able to take advantage of a team that was missing a key player, a key member of its team? So I'm hoping that this playoffs... No one gets injured. And whoever makes the NBA playoffs made it because they faced every player on the team that's a difference maker. That's either great or elite. Just saying. 
Anyway, next week will be, be interesting to see who survives the plan, plan, who wins, who didn't win, who's a shocker. You know, um, we'll see what happens. So in 20 days, the NBA draft is going to happen. And right now, I'm one of those, I have, I, well, I have been one of those guys who have looked at mock drafts that come out almost every day. And some I question, some I don't. Some I question because they, they have certain teams who have wide receivers or have certain players, and they have them drafting a young guy at the same position. Like, for example, the Lions. The Lions signed about two or three different guys um, to strengthen the secondary. And some mock drafts have them going back to the secondary position and drafting another corner. Instead of trying to update its defensive line or linebacking crew. Maybe that's just me, but I don't know. I, it's, it's a weird draft because also at the same times, at the same time, there's also like a, an unwritten rule. You don't draft certain players at certain positions at a certain spot, like a center. The centers, right now, a team like the New York Giants don't have a center. They could draft one of the best centers in the draft and plug in a, and plug in a major uh, hole in the offensive line in the first round, or they, or they could wait. And some mock drafts have them Drafting a center versus getting a corner, which they technically don't have at this moment, in back of a Dory Jackson. They don't have an ideal starter at back of a Dory Jackson. A guy who's a great player, but he misses games. Every season he misses games. And the Giants, the smartest thing the Giants could do is draft a corner and potentially release a Dory Jackson in the next season or two versus keeping his contract and suffering maybe three games, four games, maybe 10 games, because yet he's going to be hurt yet again. It's just been something that has haunted Adoree Jackson, but getting one of these corners and not addressing the issue during free agency says, for me as a fan, that's that's where they're going, versus going for the number one wide receiver because they've signed a plethora <clears throat> of of um, wide receivers. They have signed so many different guys. Like if you were so certain that you were going to sign, uh, I'm not sign, draft a wide receiver in this upcoming season's draft, why sign three guys? Why sign five guys in the off season? How does that make any sense to, uh, to do, of um, something to do when you can update and upgrade, not update, upgrade, your wide receiver position by drafting one of these great wide receiver prospects that are available in this upcoming year's draft. Anyway, I can't wait for the draft. Let's talk about another issue. Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers' is, is situation is crazy. The season, offseason for, for the Packers has been around four months now. And in four months, we've heard a plethora of stuff that I don't need to repeat. But the idea, for more than a month, Aaron Rodgers has been linked to the Jets. Everyone feels it's going to happen. Everyone feels because they got Lizard and Hackett as the defensive coordinator that Aaron Rodgers is for certain going to go to the Jets. And yet, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's just mind-boggling 
uh, mind-boggling that it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's just me, but yet, ladies and gentlemen, it's just crazy. What's another another crazy thing? Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson, who, who is a version of what everyone probably wanted Michael Vick to be, which is a guy who could run the ball great and also pass it great. But yet, at this point, at this moment, he hasn't signed. Some people are, are hanging over that he's missed about 10 games in the past 33, past 34 games. But yet, every season that he started, the Ravens are over 500. The idea that the Ravens finally had a good wide receiver in back of Mark Andrews, the all-pro uh, Pro Bowl tight end, and they traded Brown to the Cardinals after he after he had gained 1,000 yards. So basically, you just established that you have two good targets for Lamar Jackson, and you trade one away. They did nothing last season to replace Brown, and they've basically never really given Brown uh, Lamar Jackson at least three guys that he could throw to. Instead, the Ravens have continuously went back to running the ball. They have continually went back and being one of the number one ranked teams in rushing the ball per game versus being a team that could split. Lamar Jackson, ladies and gentlemen, to me, and maybe this is me liking him a little bit too much, is him playing. I think he has the, the, the best opportunity to be a quarterback that will lead in total yards between rushing and passing because I, I guarantee that he will have a minimum of 4,500 to 5,000 yards combined and has a great opportunity to have 25 to 40 touchdowns a game, which is crazy. And it's crazy to think about maybe it's his agent. Maybe it's the fact that he doesn't have an agent. Maybe it's the fact that Deshaun Watson killed the market. Because Deshaun Watson got traded to the Browns. And in the process of trading to the Browns, he signed a, a large contract where it's fully guaranteed. Can someone explain a player who's never been to an AFC championship or a Super Bowl gets a fully guaranteed contract? Patrick Mahomes, he should get a count of fully. If you're just saying any player should deserve it, it should be players like a Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or any guy who's consistently, when the team's healthy and have the right pieces around them, can always take the team to an AFC or NFC uh, uh, championship or Super Bowl. And that's that's Lamar, you know, and, and Deshaun Watson has never done that. But Lamar Jackson is... The idea that he hasn't been traded, the idea that teams have walked away from him, the idea that that he's just out there is just like I don't understand. I I don't I can't comprehend why he's still a free agent, why he's being lowballed, why other teams are not swooping in and getting a difference maker like him. If I was the Jets, I would go after go after Lamar Jackson. The idea that he's younger. The idea that he's exciting, the idea that he increases the, the rushing total per game and would have a great season with the pieces they have around him, pieces of, and receivers and tight end that he never had with the Ravens, that you would see him have a great game. I think he would be fully healthy if he's not asked to rush the ball 
as much as he has with the Ravens. And be a, a consistent MVP candidate and consistent Pro Bowl, consistent Pro uh, Pro, uh, Pro. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling that he's still available. I don't understand it. I I can't. I just don't get why he's still out there and he's still available. Maybe it's just me, but I just don't get it. So the MLB season has started. The bases have expanded. There's no more overly dramatic uh, shifts. The pitch clock has come into change. Things uh, has changed things the most because games have been able has been able to pick up and basically have to retrain certain guys. I mean, think about it. That's the biggest difference makers this year. Is that there's a pitch clock that one the hitter has to be ready before, two the pitcher has to be ready to be ready before. If not, they get penalized in some kind of capacity. But now guys have to retrain themselves on how they play the game. Sometimes some hitters took the time to try to get in the head of the pitcher, or the pitcher took its time to try to get in the head of the hitter. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it helped the guy be more consistent on the mound or hit it to be uh, get more hits. And now they have to go into games and they have to be ready quickly. They have to say, pitcher's got to be ready to throw that fastball right away versus saying, think about, you know, maybe I shouldn't do the fastball, maybe I should do the slider, the knuckleball, the splitter, whatever it is. But it's worked. Games have, in, turtle, in, ter in terms of times, have decreased at minimum 30 to 40 minutes per game. So if games were at 3 hours and 10 minutes last year, they're at at least 2 hours and 30 minutes. And runs have increased. One of the things that's a shocker that stealing bases the past 5 years or more seem to have decreased each year. And this season, with these new rules, with these new things that they're implementing, we have seen... Um, we have seen win totals. I mean, we have seen stolen bases increase. And I like that. I always liked the idea of stealing bases. I find a part of the game that's interesting. You're telling me that if there's no outs, I steal the base and I get to second base before the guy even hits the ball, that if the guy gets a single, I get to score or better? I don't know. I've never been given the talent of, of, um, of, of, um, you know, I've never been that fast. But long story short, one of the main things I want to see happen in this process of these new rules is the increase of fans in attendance. The idea that baseball doesn't guarantee 75% of full capacity or better than 75% is crazy. It's crazy to see a stadium have 40,000 or more and only 20,000 or 15,000 people show up. For a basketball game or hockey game, that looks amazing. But the idea that if you go to a baseball game and there's 50,000 people could sit there and it's not even at 75% full capacity, at uh, 75% capacity, is mind-boggling. Te baseball teams play... 81 games at home. And analysts and people could always predict when the capacity will always increase. People will always say, well, home openers are always great. Um, September games are always great when teams are competing. 
a new trade could do it, etc. and so forth. But the idea that there are games where it's not even at 50% capacity is crazy. And some people may have said, maybe it's because people got bored. Maybe it's because games felt like it took forever to finish. We'll see. We'll see if these new improvements to the game increases the fan attendance. Because the idea that the stadium's that big, maybe all, all new stadiums should be at XF, uh, should be at least 30,000 versus being 35, 40, 50,000. Maybe that's just me, but it's just sad when you watch games and it's not even half full or 80% of the fans are in attendance. Anyway, this past weekend, WWE had WrestleMania. Two nights versus one night. And the first night was better. And the second night wasn't great. It had great moments for certain matches, but in overall, it wasn't great. You know, um, Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair had an amazing match. It was the first time in WWE history where both wrestlers are women and the referee is a woman too. It's never happened and it happened this past weekend. And they had an amazing match. Amazing match. The tag team match between Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, and the Usos was amazing. The idea that they were dethroned. The idea... This is the the greatest thing that, that, that made it great too. It was that they wrestled together. Solo didn't come out. Roman Reigns did not come out to assist the Usos. The Usos and Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens had a great match and the fans loved it and that was great. The Seth Rollins match was great with, with Logan Paul and John Cena's match was horrible just for the sheer fact that we knew that he wasn't going to win. He's a movie star. He's collecting a check. Just like if, Rome, if, if The Rock came back at any time in the next year or so He's coming for a check. He's not coming to win the title, to be at Raw every week, go at live events, or what have you. He'd rather get a movie that's going to pay him $10 million or more. I don't know what he gets paid per movie. His body doesn't get injured, and he gets to go home, not being have to be uh, sore in any spot. That was the first night. The second night, uh, bon uh, Bianca Belair had a great dance total. There was a little girl whose mother had died, and, and they shared the story on that, and they, the girls were great. But the chemistry between Oscar and Bianca Belair just didn't match. It just seemed like it, that there was no chemistry there. It didn't flow. It felt like there was a lot of hesitation. And as a, someone like me who's watched wrestling for so long, when you see hesitation, when, it, wrestler doesn't, when, the, when the match doesn't flow, there's a lot of hesitation in terms of doing certain moves. Something says something's not right in my eye. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I feel. Then you had the situation where The Miz came out again with, with uh, Snoop Dogg. And Shane Man comes out, which no one thought was going to happen. And every fan was excited when Shane got there. And in less than five minutes, Shane gets hurt. And it looks so awkward. Like, did he really get hurt in less than five minutes of, of, of the match? So then you had to have them, you had to have Snoop Dogg and Miz improvise. 
where the where the Miz got punched in the face twice by by um by Snoop and Snoop gave him a like a a, a comical people's elbow. It was just it's like, oh my god, did that really happen? Then you had the other thing that messed up the night, that messed up the second night, where Edge and Finn Balor were supposed to um have this match in the hell in a cell. Edge looked great in how he came out. Finn this was trying to do these th slow motion thing with these smoke machines, and he looked awkward. He looked like a guy who said, a guy who can't dance, who thought he could dance, so they gave him the floor and the spotlight, and you could tell he can't dance, but he felt confident about it, even though everything he was doing kind of made you laugh or made you cringe your face. And that's what I felt when Finn Balor came out. It just felt weird. His character as the demon with the smoke and the ramp being as long as it was, was kind of crazy. It just didn't fit the demon character. Then you saw in the match, the Hell in Cell had holes in the Hell in the Cell. And that was kind of awkward. Maybe I've never saw it in the past and, and it did exist in the past, but I never witnessed that in, in other Hell in the Cells. And then there was a little platform. But the thing that messed it up the most was that Finn Ballard got hurt so bad that they stopped the match quickly to address the injury. Then they had to finish the match, I think, a lot quicker than they, they wanted because of the, the blood that was coming out of Finn Balor. That in the end, you kind of felt like, what? That's it? You know, that, that, that was what I was waiting for the last three or four weeks or two months between these two guys. And that hurt it. And then you had... Seth, I mean, then you had Roman and Cody. And ladies and gentlemen, I have to say, I am fed up in watching Roman Reigns and matches. And I don't know if that's a funny thing or not, but I made a reference in social media when people were trying to give Roman Reigns props for winning this past weekend versus Cody Rhodes is he's the best interference champion. You can't say within the last two years, three years, whatever amount of times he's been champion that majority of them have not been assisted by one of the members of the bloodline. They have assisted in some kind of capacity. Solo helped Roman win. The Usos interfered. Yes, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn fought off the Usos, but the reality was in the end of the match, Solo aided Roman. Did Roman really beat Cody? Now I'm learning out, learning that Cody was never supposed to win because... Brock Lesnar and Cody Rhodes were supposed to, there was already storyline in place for them to play. I mean, to wrestle. Crazy. Um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what's happening. I mean, right now, supposedly, th th there's a merger right now happening in, in, with WWE with UFC. Uh, Vince McMahon, who was supposed to be gone from WWE, is now back in again with his porn stash. And now people are feeling that he's going to mess up things after Triple H has done such great things in, his, uh, in the absence of Vince. The things are ultimately going to change. You know, ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. It's crazy that Cody, Cody Rhodes didn't win, but it makes sense. You don't want a guy who wants to give the storyline that he's been waiting, he wants to finish the story, that he wants to do all these things, and he does it on the first year. It is better, because then, then what else does he have to fight for? You accomplish what you wanted.
You won the championship the first year that you have been with WWE. Why do you have to continue wrestling? Right? So I get it. We'll see what happens between him and, and Brock. You know, I, one of the things I'm questioning right now is, is did this happen because Seth is angry at WWE for letting Cody come in and achieve all these different things the first year that he's there and he's not getting the opportunity. He has voiced it in interviews of being unhappy and seeing Cody get all these chances. Is this a way of making people like Seth and maybe other wrestlers be a little bit more at peace? And now Cody is going to face guys like Brock and maybe others before he maybe he gets another opportunity and chance to wrestle for WWE. And maybe he gets the respect and the heat that's there on Cody kind of calms down a little bit and fans... uh, will um, be more respective of it or what have you. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Truth and Rally podcast. Remember, you can go on any podcast apps you like, Spotify, Apple, Overcast, Google, whatever one, and you could go there and subscribe. And whenever an episode is available for you to listen to, once you subscribe, it will let you know that there's a new episode available for you to listen to if you have the time to, to listen to it. Or you can go on social media. And if you go on social media, you would see my little uh, cheesy commercials promoting the new episode and with a song and whatever, telling you that there's a new episode. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Truth and Rally podcast. I'm Anthony Roman. I'm reporting in the middle of nowhere. Have a good day and even better night.